The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A warm welcome, everybody. This is Squawk Box. Let's get into your headlines this hour. Well, crude prices are extending their losses after Saudi Arabia's new energy minister assured the markets that Saudi Aramco's production will be back online by the end of the month. Where would you find a company in the whole world that went through this uh, devastating attack uh, and came out like a phoenix from the ashes? None but Saudi Aramco. U.S. stocks rise ahead of today's FOMC decision. Um, Not much doubt about the outcome. 100% of respondents to CNBC's Fed survey are expecting a quarter point cut. Donald Trump says a trade deal with China may not happen until after the 2020 presidential election. Whilst the House Speaker Nancy Pelosi tells CNBC exclusively she believes the president took the wrong approach to challenging Beijing's trade practices. But they cannot continue uh, to uh, violate our trade relationship. I think the president had to do something about it. I'm not sure he went the right way. I think we should have done it multilaterally with the EU and the rest. Too close to call. Exit polls from Israel's second election in five months show no clear winner or path to government for Benjamin Netanyahu or his rival Benny Gantz. Well, fascinating price action on crude. Crude prices adding to steep losses this hour after Saudi Arabia's energy minister, Prince Abdulaziz, said the kingdom will return to full output by the end of September. Half of Riyadh's oil production was knocked offline following two weekend attacks on Saudi Aramco oil facilities. At a press conference given by Saudi Aramco executives and Prince Abdulaziz, Hadley posed a number of questions to Aramco chairman Yasser al-Rumayan and the energy minister. Let's listen in. These attacks exposed a critical failure in Saudi's defenses. Would you be open to the Americans assisting you to uh, defend these fields? And is there a potential, as Russian President Vladimir Putin has suggested, that you might be interested in purchasing the S-400s to do that? And His Excellency Yasser al-Rumayan Your Excellency, when you take a step back and think about the Aramco IPO and the possibility of that IPO, we understand that there are a lot of conversations happening behind the scenes about whether this should even go forward given these attacks. Can you assure international investors that it is safe to put their money in Saudi Aramco and that it is safe to put their money in Saudi Arabia? Thank you both. We have our uh, uh, security apparatus there. They have our security agencies. Uh, They are uh, very attentive to uh, media. They do hold uh, frequent uh, press conferences. They're very receptive to dealing with the media. So I'd I'd, I'd prefer to uh, let you go and go and ask them, and they will be more than happy to respond to you. Today we want to talk about the restoration of the operation and the resilience of the company. This is one of the greatest companies, not only when it comes to the performance 
the revenues and the bottom line. But uh, as uh, it was demonstrated, it's so resilient that uh, in a matter of 48 hours, we uh, went back uh, to operations by the end of September, as Amin mentioned. We will uh, restore uh, the whole capacity. And um, if you want to put all of these in, uh, into perspective, this is one of the most resilient companies uh, in uh, oil business be it the uh, IOCs or the government uh, oil companies. So, as we mentioned before, the uh, IPO um, is a commitment by the uh, shareholder, the government of Saudi Arabia. And um, we're, um, we think the IPO will uh, continue as is. We're not going to stop anything. This would make us even um, uh, be firm when it comes to uh, uh, taking the company public. So I think any time in the coming uh, 12 months, we will be ready as per the market uh, opportunity. Well, let's get out to Hadley now. Terrific question, Hadley, but I didn't get the sense that I had a fulsome answer from either of those gentlemen in the press conference. Little bit evasive around who is going to provide improved security for these facilities. Um, what was your reading between the lines of uh, the message from the event? It was interesting, Jeff, because we were really caught off guard that there was going to be a press conference at all. They had to hire a flight to get the journalists or as many journalists who were able to get into the kingdom last minute, because as you know, there is a visa crunch when you're coming in and out of Saudi Arabia, just to get them all out there from Riyadh. Um, I think there was a sense of wanting to fill the room from what I could tell and what I heard from my sources within uh, the energy ministry and, and ministry and Aramco itself, what they really wanted to do was to you know, give a sense of calm to the market. I heard the comment, higher oil prices are bad for Iran several times um, in talking about the reasons behind needing to get out there and say something. So I think that this was really about trying to show a united front uh, and, and really calm the market, maybe more than to address specifically answers about what's going to happen with the security of these fields. I asked, as you heard, well, do you want the Americans to come in or do you need more weapons? Would you be open to the S-400 system? I mean, anything's on the table, I think, for this country when they're talking about um, preventing another major attack on what is a critical lifeline, as you very well know, uh, to the Saudi economy. Also, I thought it was interesting, a little later in the press conference, uh, the oil minister essentially saying, we still don't know who was behind these attacks. We've seen Saudi Arabia really loath to rush to judgment, to rush to some kind of conclusion here. Later today, we're expecting uh, to hear from the defense forces. They're expected to provide um, their evidence or show their evidence of the investigations that they've been having over the last few days about who's behind these attacks. And Secretary of State Mike Pompeo as you know, on his way to uh, Jeddah at this very moment, he's going to be meeting with the other uh, ministers. He's going to also be meeting uh, with the king, of course, and Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince. And from what I've been hearing uh, from the folks back in Washington, it's that they are going to build an international consensus, or at least try to, uh, to tackle what they see as Tehran's malign behavior, to tackle, uh, frankly, uh, what they see as, as an act of war against another country. Uh, and that's, to, that's sincerely what, what they do believe and what they seemingly are going to present tonight uh, here in Jeddah. So we're going to have all those developments for you. And certainly this has got to play into this broader narrative of what exactly this is going to do to the market, whether or not this is going to depress prices or if this is going to hike prices in the long term. But really, in terms of that Saudi press conference, I did get the sense that it was much more about showing a united front than necessarily saying too much.
Hadley, before we let you go, obviously the markets today will focus on the terrific pullback we've seen in the price over the last 24 hours here as we've tried to come up with some sense of when these production facilities will be up and running. Very significant pullback. Again, let me ask you, what are your sources there saying about that? Because one would imagine there is some disappointment that we've dropped so hard. I think that there has been so much struggle in the last few days to try and get ahead of this story, given the fact that uh, the events, you know, it was interesting in that press conference last night, we heard again and again, not just from the oil minister, but also Mr. Amin Nasser, the CEO of Aramco, as well as the chairman, essentially wanting to say again and again, you know, no other company could have gotten back online this fast. That just speaks to the fact that we are um, so committed, obviously, to the product, we're committed to our customers, but also that we have this, you know, ability to control uh, events, even in the face of terror attacks, for example. But I thought it was really interesting. They kept going back to that and going back to that again and again. I mean, you know, the, the conversations we were having offline is that the Saudis definitely have enough spare capacity to, to fill out the gaps over the next several months as they work uh, on these kinds of repairs. I mean, you're talking about spheroids. That can take months to repair. We're talking about trains and trains wreck. That takes months to repair, no doubt. They can't get that finished in just a few days. I think it's really interesting um, to watch what happens next in terms of the geopolitical situation, as you know, because obviously prices over the summer not reacting to the geopolitics or the geopolitics here, excuse me. But at the same point, the Saudis themselves, as you know, need that higher oil price, you know, 80 to 90 dollars a barrel, really to break even and to, to get this Saudi vision 2030 that the crown prince is so very much behind uh, moving forward. At the same time, I thought it was quite interesting that, you know, folks were saying to me, this is about making sure that we calm the markets and also that we don't give a leg up to Tehran and we think higher world prices are going to be good for them. So that's not something that we want to see. Hadley, thank you very much indeed for that. We'll come back to you a little bit later on. Let's uh, get a gauge on what events out of the Middle East are meaning for the rest of the world and for the world of fixed income, especially with Arthur Lau, who joins us, co-head of Emerging Markets Fixed Income and head of Asia X Japan Fixed Income over at Pinebridge Investments. Good morning, Arthur. Good morning. So, look, we know that um, asset classes in Asia are sensitive to all kinds of global events, trade events as well. But in terms of China and, of course, huge importer of product, from the Middle East as well. Is events that we see in the Middle East at the moment and these price spikes enough to derail the Chinese economic story at the moment when we know it is incredibly sensitive both to the trade war situation and global trade flows? I think in, in terms of the macroeconomic, clearly it's uh, sensitive to the global situation, whether it's the Middle Eastern or, uh, as you said, uh, the trade uh, war um, with the US. Uh, but if you look at the component of the Chinese uh, uh, GDP, actually more than half is domestic driven services and consumption sector. They do still have a significant industrial manufacturer, which is the export orientation. Uh, but increasingly, they are moving up the value chain, which is more like the technology rather than really basic gadgets. So I think the sensitivities now is more sort of contained in a certain area rather than it's a very broad base. Um, so the sector that are more vulnerable are the very sort of infamous uh, TMT sector. Uh, the name that everyone or everybody knows, which are uh, 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 currently still in uh, in the struggle. So I think those sectors probably will be will be subject to more sensitivity than the others. Uh, for the um, one other sector is more sensitive is the agricultural because um, in, in order to sort of relieve some of the pressures uh, between US and China, China need to step up in terms of the agricultural product acquisition or procurement, 
which in a way will be a negative effect to, for the domestic agricultural sector. So these are something that we are watchful. Arthur, I want to tackle the usage of the word oil shock because that's been thrown around as the, the key risk for markets yeah. where there could be the tipping point into recession. Yeah. Uh, but this time, I wonder if it is different. I mean, we saw the data out of China, yeah. a 17 and a half year low on industrial production. Yeah. A weakness started enough so that central banks need to get so active in almost like a coordinated form of policy. Do you think we have an oil shock when demand is so weak there seems to be an offsetting factor? Well, the first of all, we, we need to have, for, uh, for, so form a case uh, how long this disruption will last. Because if we see that the disruption actually will be just a short-term phenomenon, I don't think China will be affected. Even if it's not, I mean, you know, the question mark remains on the demand side. Even if this is a long lingering story for, for several months, could it be an oil shock because of the weakness in demand? Well, the weakness is demand clearly will be just not taken from the oil side. It's also from the other aspects. The moderation of growth clearly is 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 very um, uh, obvious, and I think that, like as you highlighted, some of the measures that, that the Beijing government tried to offset this slowdown, um, we can argue whether it is effective or successful, and whether there will be more to come. My view is uh, like they are very targeted, focused in terms of how arresting the slowdown in some sector, especially like the major sector in property or consumption. For the industrial and manufacturing, they are still consolidating. So there are still zombie companies that they need them to shut down. I think the capacity is still pretty much in some sector over capacity. So there are still some slack uh, they can take away, which kinds of like offsetting this uh, slowdown pressure. But yes, the slowdown is there. But we don't think that there is a crash uh, in China. And I certainly don't buy that hard landing scenario at the moment. Arthur? You're very lucky. You get to hang out with us for a, at least another slot here. So um, cool your heels and we'll come back to you in just a moment. Arthur Lau, co-head of Emerging Market Fixed Income and head of Asia X Japan uh, Fixed Income at Pinebridge Investments. Uh, what's on the economic calendar for the day ahead? European auto sales expected to fall as the sector continues to suffer from the trade war. Just how bad will those numbers be? We'll find out later on in the day. UK inflation forecast to stabilise back below the Bank of England's target, with Reuters predicting a read of 1.9% ahead of the BOE decision tomorrow. And today's main event is the Federal Reserve, of course, which is expected to cut rates by 25 basis points. And we'll look ahead to that and why Jeffrey Gundlach believes the central bank could have more than a, than a rate cut up its sleeve right now. And if you just can't get enough of Squawk Box, be sure to tune in for our very own podcast. Head to cnbc.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts to have a listen and download today's episode. For our listeners out there, stick around for some more. A CNBC signature event. East Tech West, CNBC's exclusive invitation-only retreat returns to Nanshao, Guangzhou, China in 2019. We explore all things tech from artificial intelligence to 5G. Join the world's most prolific investors, inventors and entrepreneurs as they share their stories and celebrate innovation. Visit EastTechWest.com for an application to attend.
Welcome back to Scorebox. Let's fill in the gaps on the markets overnight. We'll just run you through very quickly all of the asset classes. U.S. indices, which had been in negative territory, back up on the front foot as well. Nine out of 10 sessions now we've seen the Dow moving towards the upside. So now the Dow and the S&P within a percent away from their record highs. So despite all the consternation about the Middle East, consternation about the U.S. economic performance, concerns about China, Asia, trade, etc., etc., Brexit, we can chuck in there. These markets remain ebullient as well. The Nasdaq, just a couple of percent away from that record high. Underperforming yesterday, we saw the likes of energy and banks. Dollar crosses look like this ahead of what will now be a big segment talking about the Federal Reserve. The pound, despite Xavier Bettel's best efforts to humiliate the British Prime Minister, or is it the British Prime Minister's best efforts to humiliate himself? There you go, both sides of the equation. Uh, 124.84 is where cable is currently trading as well. So a degree of optimism, bearing in mind we went down to 118 on that pair, uh, the uh, lows, the nadir, the trough uh, of Brexit concerns. Uh, Euro dollar 110.63, dollar yen 108.19, dollar yuan 708.62. Uh, Very, very volatile, as we've been explaining all session on WTI and Brent. Big session to the downside. As I was trying to explain to you yesterday, this is not a one-way bet. That came back in some fashion, didn't it? Uh, Maybe I'll go into a bit more detail about that some one these days. WTI, 59 bucks. Uh, Brent Cruz, 64.55. Gold, catching a bid yesterday, then coming off again later on. 15.02 is where it currently trades. Seems anchored at the moment around that big figure, 1,500. Asian indices look like this. The Nikkei, uh, a smidgen lower. The Shanghai Composite, 0.4 of a percent to the upside. AS6200 losing two temps of 1%. And the opening calls for the European market look like this. A mild decline at the start of proceedings. Thanks, Dave. The New York Fed is poised to inject a further $75 billion into the banking system today, having conducted an overnight repo operation on Tuesday for the first time in more than a decade. The Fed provided a $53 billion cash boost in a bid to help ease funding pressures in short-term lending markets. The operation shows banks borrow cash from the Fed using treasuries and other securities as collateral. Meanwhile, the Double Line Capital CEO Jeffrey Gundlach says the repo market squeeze makes it even more likely the Fed will resume expansion of its balance sheet, quote, pretty soon. In an investor webcast, the bond guru says he expects the central bank to embark on QE light and grow its balance sheet, quote, in line with the growth in the currency, like it did before the credit crisis. The comments come ahead of the Fed's upcoming decision in which it's widely tipped to cut rates by 25 basis points. Steve Leisman takes a look at the results of the CNBC Fed survey. Wall Street expects the Federal Reserve to cut interest rates amid growing concern about economic weakness, recession fears and the trade war. 100 percent of respondents to the CNBC Fed survey see the Fed cutting rates by a quarter point after it announces results of its September meeting. Nearly all expect another quarter point cut by year end. The problem is that forecasts for lower rates come with a reduced outlook for U.S. growth and an increased probability of recession. The chance of a recession in the next 12 months soared to an 11-year high of 32 percent, according to the survey. It was below 20 percent for most of last year. Growth is forecasted to decline as well to 2.2 percent this year from 2.5 in 2018, and it sinks to just 1.8 percent in 2020. Economist Joel Nauroff writes in response to the survey, quote, a trade war that continues into next spring or summer almost certainly causes a recession that's likely to spread worldwide. Now, not everyone agrees. Richard Sichel, senior investment strategist at the Philadelphia Trust Company, says recession talk has been overdone. 
Yes, there has been some slowdown in various economic indicators, but the outlook for robust holiday spending is good based on the high level of consumer confidence. That should drive growth and stocks higher. For now, respondents to the survey see very slight gains ahead for stocks, but continued low interest rates. Question is whether Fed rate cuts will be enough to offset the negatives from the trade war and global economic weakness. The high levels of the stock market and continued forecasts for lower interest rates suggest the market's betting the Fed will win that fight. Steve Leisman, CNBC Business News. Okay, the treasuries look like this. We have a 1.8% yield on the 10-year, 1.72 on the 2-year, and right out on the curve to the 30-year, you get just over 2%. Um, Arthur Lau, of course, still with us. Uh, from Pinebridge Investments. Arthur, I don't know whether to start off asking you about what we expect from the Fed or talk about this repo market. So why don't we do the former? That's a broader issue as well. Um, In terms of the cut, that's there. It's done. Mm -hmm. Um, Part of the mid-cycle adjustment. But in terms of what you really care about, I presume dot plot uh, and comments from the Federal Reserve Chair. Yes, uh, I think like there's a market of discrepancies in terms of what they think about the uh, interest rate outlook. Uh, certainly the market has some uh, high expectation of further cut, uh, but at the same time, if you look at some of the data, we don't expect a recessionary story uh, um, next year so um, early yet. So we think that the interest rate actually will normalize into the year end, uh, given the fact that like uh, the, the treasury actually has rebound from the 10 years from the very low 120, 130 to now 170, 180, we think that the curve actually will continue to break steepen into the year end uh, because the fundamental from the U.S. data actually don't, are not in line with the uh, very barriers in the treasury market at the moment. So there is some gap. And we think that the, whether there's, uh, uh, the, uh, the Fed continue to cut rate doesn't really solve what about, there's a lot of our viewers out there who aren't investors for the medium to longer term. A lot of our, inv- our viewers actually try to day trade and short term gauge the market. We saw that a very aggressive move down to those yields you talked about, the 130, 140s, yep. and back up again to the 190 yep. level as well. Is there an opportunity for our viewers to trade the yield aggressively? Yes, I do. Uh, we think that the uh, 10 year treasury, uh, for example, is going to range trade by, uh, in the range. Uh, we think about 2, 225 probably is the peak. So approach, approaching something like 190, 190 something is a very opportun- uh, good opportunity for us to long um, because we think that there is a trading range. But in fact, we think that the more interesting part is because the inversion of the curve in the short to medium, the belly. We think that like actually moving from the belly to the short end is a very possible, so profitable trade um, uh, into the year. So what does that mean for the banks? Because as we set up for a rate cut, you get the impression that perhaps bank profitability might be challenged. But at this point, uh, some in the market are also questioning whether there is another fresh trigger for for mortgage demand. You've seen the average rate on a 30-year fixed rate mortgage at 3.56% last week. Same time a year ago, it was 4.6%. So there's been a very big impact for those seeking a mortgage. That said, there's an element of job security and concern about the, the future still for a lot of Americans weighing up a trade war. What happens to the banks? Do you think they pick up some, some mortgage interest on the demand side? Do they see some of their profitability on margins hit in the short term? What, what's the playbook that you'd expect from here? Well, I think that like if, it all depends on the shape of the U-curves that you're expecting. Uh, as I mentioned, that we think that into the year end, the, the curve probably will have a bare steepening. Uh, uh, um, that means the curve will go up and normalize. So that actually will benefit banks' margin. So that's the reason why you have seen that some banks have performed quite well uh, recently. Um, can we have a look at SM, SEML, 
this is a, a, an ETF that I've been tracking, keeping a close eye on, because a lot of people we see are very interested in putting money into Asian sovereign debt at this okay. point here. And you've had a terrific year. You've done extremely well if you've been invested in this. But on a five-year story, it's a slightly different picture. I mean, just looking at the performance statistics, a one-year return gives you 18%. Three-year return, 4.3. Five-year return, 4.7. My question is, will that momentum continue here, given what you've said about most people have already had a pretty good year in the bond market? I think from now to the year end, my view that like people... Uh, like us, giving a very good run this year, we try to lock in the profit and try to redu uh, reduce the risk profile of the portfolio um, into the year end uh, to protect the gain. Uh, so I think from now to the year end, probably we will see a fair bit of unwinding of the, um, the sort of risk on trade. Um, some of the local currency side in particular, we find risk. Uh, because of the, the trade situation, the growth slowing down, and some of the economy actually going into from a surplus to a deficit um, trajectory, for example, China. So there is a clear sign that there is some downward pressure on the currencies. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.